Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the May edition of Prospect whizzes off the presses, we're not going to let you accuse us of playing it safe. Instead, like a man with a megaphone, we're asking whether we're approaching the end of days for London, as we've known it, for the United Kingdom as a whole, and then for the established mode of doing politics right around the world. You know, a lot of the people in the Bernie Sanders movement came out of Occupy and other kinds of horizontal movements which had failed. They learned the lessons of that. They turned it into electoral politics. So, as one Nobel laureate put it, is the old order rapidly ageing? With me to explain why they think it might be are the writer, Wendell Stevenson, the Guardian columnist and former Times editor, Simon Jenkins, and the co-founder of the online political fundraiser Crowdpack, Paul Hilder. Greetings to you all. And so, working our way through in stages from the end of the capital city to the end of the whole world, let's talk first of all, Wendell, about what's happening to London. Now, you've spent time out and about on your bike on the south bank of the Thames in a place called Nine Elms, which even non-Londoners might recognise from those mighty towers at uh, Battersea Power Station. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of towers in London now, um, and they're increasingly dwarfing the mighty towers at Battersea Power Station but Nine Elms is an extraordinary development site. It's about 40 acres of prime sort of real estate right along the river. And now with, you know, rising land prices and the Livingston project to redevelop and open up and densify and put in a new kind of London um, with higher towers, um, it's being redeveloped. Um, it's always been a difficult site because the grade two listed preservation order on the power station meant that it was always going to be very expensive to preserve Mm. and so a succession of developers who wanted to do all sorts of things from put flats in it to a football stadium to a fun fair at one point kind of went bankrupt or couldn't make it pay finally a malaysian consortium with hugely deep pockets has stepped in and the towers are beginning to rise and is it significant that they're Malaysian, that they're from a long way away. I mean, uh, the piece is labelled the neighbourhood from nowhere. I think it's significant that it ties in a little bit with the kind of wider perception in London that a lot of the new developments are being built and owned and also populated by overseas investors and buyers. And populated um, or, or not populated? Cause well, it's tricky to know because it's hard to, you know, title deeds are public. 
but it's hard to be able to track down exactly who the owners is behind companies and so forth. There isn't a tax on non-occupancy. So there's no reason for anybody to declare non-occupancy. A lot of people buy stuff and live in it part time or use it as a holiday home or rent it out partly or come and go. So occupancy rates are impossible to quantify. But there's a general perception that's probably true that the particularly in these new developments, the occupancy rates you know, are lower. I talked to one resident in St. George's Wharf that's just along the river. It's an earlier, but built, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, but a big monolithic sort of tower, glassy river view kind of thing. And he thought that it was about 50%. Paul, um, there's no doubt that housing, and Wendell's talking in Nine Elms about a lot of places that are very small and also very expensive. Housing in London, but I think more widely in the country, is, is a big cause of political dissatisfaction. Did you get some sense of why that might be reading this piece? What, what we're seeing more broadly is massive challenges, particularly of wealth inequality, that are growing and growing in society. And I think that uh, the way that plays itself out in housing is you have a sort of rentier class, many of whom in London actually aren't English or British. Um, and they don't even bother renting some of yeah. them. They just keep it as and a they money just keep box it, in the sky. Yeah, the, the safe deposit box mm. in, in the sky in, in one of uh, Wendell's remarkable quotes in her piece. And then you have everybody who feels for one reason or another left out and generally is left out in one way or another. And I think the precariat, young people uh, who will really struggle ever to get on the housing ladder uh, are stuck in a renting trap with rents rising and rising. You know, those are the people who either, you know, I talked to lots of the youngsters in Momentum who are idealists, who are struggling, and a lot of them you know, high rent is one of the things that makes them absolutely furious and totally squeezed in their daily life. But it's also a problem for the young scaffolder who I met on a train who was about to vote leave. So this is something which crosses in the, the political... Yeah, in the mm. EU referendum. Simon, um, I think I've read or heard you say before that housing in London isn't necessarily as unaffordable as, 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 as people think, at least compared to um, the past. I just don't know what the word affordable means. Mm. Does it mean cheap? Does it mean I can afford it? Um, it means uh, very different things in all I sorts know. of well, different uh, it, circumstances it, it, and different boroughs. It does mean also, technically 20% yeah. below market price. That's what it really means. London is chronically short of social housing, which is very cheap housing for people who really need it. But the idea of subsidising or caring about people who can't quite afford 20% off or can only afford 20% off the market price is kind of crazy. Um, Huge numbers of young people live in London. I struggled when I came to London long ago. Mm. Um, Living in London when London's a booming big city is going to be a struggle for people who haven't got a lot of money. Mm. That has always been the case. It's not what I see as the problem. The problem that Wendell's piece, I think, think, um, startlingly unfolds is, is, is that we're not planning these communities at all. We're not trying to see what is going to make um, what used to be called a livable city. Uh, and in this case, the density of the Nine Elms development, which is a truly awfully planned build, building site, really, um, is, that, is that it was made that dense to, to pay for a tube line into it. In other words, it was, it was justifying itself by its awfulness. Um, and, and it's abundantly clear that this is not going to be an attractive place to live for, for most people. Aren't it'll, you quite it'll end a fan up being of, a slum, in my view. Aren't mm. you quite a fan of... The fact that in the last 20 or 30 years we've brought lots of people back into the cities, people have chosen to come. And places like Battersea, if they were, they were empty, that would be a terrible waste, wouldn't it? It would, but nobody... I mean, take good and bad developments. I mean, they're all bad and good in their own way. But, I mean, the King's Cross development and the Canary Wharf development were carefully planned by one sort of aesthetic mind to make it a certain sort of community, maybe or not mixed development, but certainly mixed in all sorts of respects. Um, and they're both doing very well. 
Nine Elms was frankly let rip. And it was let rip for a very particular market, which is the, the Malaysian market. And I've been around it with the Malaysians, and they aren't interested in British. And they go on about it being a village. It's rubbish. It's not a village. It is, it is quite literally an investment opportunity. Um, and, and there's no control. There's no, in most countries, would not allow it to happen. There's no control on, on, the, on, the, on the nature of the tenancy um, or any requirement that anyone should ever live in these places. Now, I, I live in Kensington. My, my area of Kensington is basically half empty now. Kensington and Chelsea is the only... Um, only borough in the south of England, south of Hull, I think, is actually losing population at the moment, <laughs> losing formal population, quite apart from what might be called the informal population. This is bad planning, and bad planning leads to disasters down the line. But in the case of Kensington, Chelsea, is that is that planning, or is that that there's not a tax on not occupying the house or whatever? I don't think taxes they are. I mean, these people are rich. They don't mm. pay any tax. I just don't think you should be allowed to have a block of flats which nobody lives in. I, I'm simple as that. I'm, I'm a I'm a free marketeer in every respect. But, but I mean, you've got to plan these places. You, you, you've got vast swathes of London now are completely unoccupied because they've been switched from the residential market into the banking market. How do you regulate that? What do you do if you don't tax unoccupancy? You ban it. I mean, you, you, you've got to show that this building's been occupied for the last six months. It happens in cities all over the world. The Times today's got an editorial calling for it. I mean, it is not mm. rocket science. It's just in this country, we were so crazy about getting oriental investment into London. We let rip. Theresa May's phrase, wasn't it, in the, in the autumn, was something like, if you're a citizen of everywhere, then you're a citizen of nowhere. And that came into my mind reading your piece a bit, Wendell. I mean, this, this seems to be a kind of emblem of, of the sort of thing that, people don't like about Brexit, both because of the community's point Simon makes, but also because of the inequality point, I think, that Paul makes. Yeah, there's an awkwardness too, though, about sort of blaming it too much on absent foreigners. It's hard to quantify exactly what the numbers are. And there's no doubt that the roots of the problem are at heart, you know, the lack of basic social housing, building and infrastructure and investment in that, you know, following the right to buy of the Thatcher government in the, in the 80s. So it goes, you know, the, the rising prices and the, the foreign element coming into the market and so forth goes hand in hand with um, a basic housing shortage at the other end, mm. which is creating a really serious crunch. It's not just young people who find it difficult to rent or, mm. you know, difficult to get on the housing ladder or, or to, you know, get a deposit together. It's also, you know, middle class key workers, married people, kids who are really getting priced out of the capital and doubling up. There's a lot of anecdotal stuff. When I was talking to um, the folks at Shelter, for example, you know, a lot of people are sort of sofa surfing mm. and doubling up and living, you know, we know about the phenomenon of people living with their parents longer. But essentially those kind of, you know, professionals um, are moving out of the capital. That human capital is moving out of the capital. I mean, there's something quite profound going on, I think, because not that long ago, you know, throughout the whole 20th century, people just thought there'd be more and more owner-occupiers, and that tide really has turned since about 2000, which does suggest, you know, like people have always said at any point in history, there was an ascendant middle class, and it used to seem like there are more owner-occupiers. It's yeah, one of those and, things, but no more. I mean, it's, you know, the, the economics, the, the politics has followed the economics. When I talked to Tony Belton, who was this sort of wonderful, wry old Labour councillor in Wandsworth, who'd been there since the 70s and once run Labour council, you know, he, re, you know, he sort of looks, he says, I look around and I see how many of my fellow Labour councillors are now landlords. <laughs> he said, in my day, it wouldn't have been like that and that would have been almost immoral. So the rentier class, you know, has been sort of hardwired into, you know, a, a shifting 
kind of politics too, this basic sort of question of is it just, you know, should the government be responsible for housing people or should it really be left to the market? Because what's happening, what the result is in places like Wandsworth is that the people who can't pay the difficult, the pensioners, the, you know, people on the, on the sharp end of it mm. are essentially being moved out of the borough you know, and being sort of dumped in Margate and whatever. That's just, you know, the idea that you want a mixed capital, the idea that I grew up in London and it was, you know, you'd have an estate in the middle of Kensington and Chelsea and whatever. It was, it was we'd never had ghettos here before. Mm. That wasn't, that was part of a very definite idea and a political idea and a political will about how we were and how we wanted to live here. It, it, it honestly isn't new. I mean, I mean, back in the 70s, People were moving people out of Birmingham into, into, into seaside resorts. Clacton was, was, was populated by East London expatriates. It's always been like that. One of the problems is actually buying houses in London has never been so cheap, provided you got the down payment. And I went through a huge um, effort with three of my flatmates from when I first moved to London. And we compared, literally, what we paid then and what we paid now. It's almost exactly the same. It's almost exactly the same. The only difference was, 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 was the degree to which you turned to your parents for the down payment. And I, I remember saying at the time, tax, when taxes were very high, and they were, came down from 80% to 40%, I said, I bet you anything the market will find a way of increasing those taxes again. And it has. It's made middle-class people pay a large sum of money to their children to buy a house. But once you've got that, um, I mean, these interest rates of 2 3 4%. Mm. I paid 14%. I mean, a quarter of my income, gross income, went immediately on my mortgage payment. I suppose payment. inflation might have helped you a little bit. <laughs> well, it, 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 you know, I wasn't paid very much either. I mean, it, mm. it, it really, we, we went right through the sums. It really wasn't that different, which explains why, I repeat, I mean, you know, my wife's company, where I work and so on, it's full of young people. Somehow they're managing. They will always say they're struggling, but somehow they're managing. A lot of this, there are all sorts of knock-on effects in what I think increasingly is a broken economy. So the fact that, people's pensions uh, went into crisis, you know, over the last 15 years, has a lot to do with the number of older people who have a certain amount of wealth who started becoming uh, buy-to-let landlords, because they started getting worried about their retirements. Now, anyone under 35 generally won't have much of a pension, uh, or much of an expectation of a retirement. Um, so you know, all, all, all these different parts of the system, I think, are increasingly under strain, both economically and politically. Let's move from the broken um, economy to the um, broken country, potentially, Simon, because you're talking uh, in a prediction in our pages this month about Scotland going and becoming part of a semi-detached Commonwealth, which I think you mean probably that Nicola Sturgeon's going to get a referendum and very possibly win it. It's very curious. 34 years ago, it was inconceivable that Scotland, uh, let alone Wales, would ever think of going independent mm. of, of the British. It was inconceivable. What's changed? Well, two things have changed. One is that people have become more aware of their provincial identity. And the other thing is that, that we have continued to rule um, these subsidiary provinces badly. And we treated Scotland appallingly. I mean, the poll tax, I remember the poll tax incident very well. It was unbelievably crude, crass, insulting thing to tell the Scots they're going to pay a brand new tax, which is deeply unpopular, as an experiment to see if it could be done on England. Mm. It was introduced there a year early. I mean, Scotland went from being 40% Tory to being 5% Tory. It was as simple as that. Now, I just believe that, and it sort of continued, it's a rather patronising way. We'll, we'll give you a bit more money if you stay loyal to us. Um, I just think that, 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 that um, if a majority of people in a particular definable province affirm that they want to be independent, 
you have neither the right to stop them nor any interest in stopping them. I cannot see why we should oppose Scottish independence. I really can't. Um, independence it will always be a flexible concept it's not it's not a, a total detachment you, you, you can like, like brexit I mean, you know that there's going to be layers of dependency in the relationship between england and scotland um, but they i think sooner or later will firmly say thank you very much but no we want our own parliament we want to come out of your parliament we want a new relationship which will govern all the mechanics of, of adjacency but broadly speaking, we want our independence. Do you see Brexit as a big part of it? In that, like, there really was a, you know, the, the map just changed at Hadrian's Wall completely from being mostly Leave to being mostly um, Remain. Um, on the other hand, the kind of sensible, let's have some rules governing trade and so on across the border definitely gets more difficult when one, one side's in the EU and one's out. Well, that, that, that's clearly the case. And as we're now seeing, a lot of very bright people are going to have to spend a lot of time trying to work out what it means. Um, it's not my job, it's their job. They've been given the job by the electorate. It's a bloody difficult job. And God knows where it's going to end. Um, but I, I just think the reality of it is that, 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 that you, you, you ultimately can't mess around with people's sense of identity. And I think the EU did on the whole do that. It, it rode roughshod over people's desire to exercise a certain degree of control over the regulations that govern their lives, um, felt they weren't being listened to. Um, the same that Britain collectively apparently feels towards the EU is what the Scots feel towards London. Mm. Um, it's not really any different. Which is very much the point that Neil Atchison makes in another, in another piece. We've got a big union theme uh, in the magazine. Um, Wendell, um, Simon talks about the idea that provincial identity is on the rise there. Um, that would have sounded very old-fashioned, wouldn't it, 30 or 40 years ago? People would have thought, this is something that belongs to almost a pre-industrial age. Well, provincial identity or national identity seems to be on the rise. And it's sort of, this is what's um, disturbing, dismaying, to me at least. I like the idea of less borders. I like the idea of big umbrellas. I like the idea of being able to be, to have a smaller provincial or city identity within a larger frame mm. um, and I think that being in a European community of what any, any, whatever sort of description the EU certainly wasn't the perfect iteration of it politically um, you know helped in all sorts of ways you know helped um, the British to you know lose a sort of the bilateral rub and abrasion with the Irish it helps you know Catalans to be Catalan you know within a broader framework and one of the things that both in the Scottish referendum and the Brexit um, debate before that vote, um, that see, you know, in both cases, the arguments seemed to be um, made were entirely economic. And there was nothing about what it means to, you know, share a broader identity, a double identity. There are, you know, plenty of people are not one thing or the other and no longer identify as one thing or the other. And I kept thinking, you know, I have lots of friends who live in Scotland who, you know, one grew up in Edinburgh, one grew up in London. Their kids, you know, do their kids want to have to choose what passport they have? Why should they have to define themselves, you know, in a nationalistic way? Isn't it? It, it feels ugly and unhelpful to be rebordering. David Woodhart's new book mm. is talking very much about this. And, and most of us are sort of anywheres, as he puts it. I mean, you know, we, we, we like to think of ourselves as globalists. We, we hate borders. We think nationalism is a bad word. And that certainly ruled the conventional political dialogue for the past for half century, I'd say. Mm. And for very good reasons. I mean, we have the legacy of nationalism all around us. On the other hand, um, if you tell people who do regard you as a, a distant liberal elitist 
I'm sorry, you have no idea what I think and feel. You have no idea, you have no respect for my sense of community. You, you know, get lost. I want, I want my yeah. control back. I think identity is a good thing, right? I, I think that this is one of the things the Remain campaign got wrong. Uh, I'm a proud Londoner. I'm a proud Englishman. I'm a global villager and a villager, uh, both in the village that I grow, grew up in in Surrey and in the village that I live in now in, in South London. What we're seeing after the series of campaigning insurgencies that have you know, flooded through Britain over the last uh, three years, the kaleidoscope has been been shaken. And I welcome that in the sense that I think that Britain had been in a long post-imperial nostalgic slump. And now we have to really face up to what it is to build this country or countries, these isles, shall we say, um, in the 21st century. Uh, And are you sanguine about, um, because you say you're proud English national Mm. or whatever, you didn't say you were a proud British national. So are you sanguine about letting Scotland go as, as Simon is? Or are you think, oh, God, another border like Wendell does? I think it's up to the Scottish, very much like uh, mm. Simon. I have friends on both sides up in Scotland. I'm keen on either a federal or a confederal future for the Isles, right? And I think we can make either of those work. I don't think there's a huge difference between the two of them. Let's come on now to your article, which is about... Um, really the way that um, you just used the Tony Blair phrase about the kaleidoscope being in, in, in flux, but you've got a particular thesis as to why this is happening now, and it sort of starts with, um, well, I was going to say the internet, but we can maybe take it back even a bit further, because you talk about lorry drivers texting each other and pushing Tony Blair to the brink, for example. Yeah, I think a lot of the change that we're seeing now has its roots in the sociological transformations of the network society, uh, in Manuel Castell's phrase. Um, And that is about how people and technologies kind of interact. I think that there is a kind of dissolving power to networks, that they they tend to dissolve existing (laughs) institutions, and then they form new kind of networks of relationships. And and, um, what, what we're seeing right now is people in the old institutions really not understanding the new rules of the game and being very, very much behind the curve and losing a lot of their power. People who understand the new networked uh, reality and who are operating in a more in a way which is informed by that, and that's everybody from uh, Trump to Bernie Sanders, uh, from Dominic Cummings, who is the architect of the Brexit campaign, to the people in Podemos, and to some extent Macron's campaign in, in France. People who understand the new network reality, I think, are, are, are better positioned to build the next order. And I think we're in a revolutionary moment. I think this last year, I argue it in my piece, uh, was the West's 1989. Because... A lot of prospect readers, I suspect, don't really like a lot of what happened in 2016, Mm. Brexit and Trump. They'll also think, yes, technology was important, but it was social media echo chambers. It were these sinister characters at Cambridge Analytica turning people's Facebook data into means of of, of brainwashing them. In other words, a real kind of story of cynical, top-down, commandant misinformation... But you come out of all of this much more optimistic and say, in the end, this is going to be a liberating thing, right? I'm a pessimist of the intellect and an optimist of the will, in Gramsci's phrase. So uh, I think that there is real reason to be concerned because a lot of the people who've been taking advantage of this new landscape uh, have been doing so in ways which I would not 
agree with and for reasons that I would not agree with. But they're tapping into real grievances and problems in society. None of those campaigns would have succeeded Mm. if they didn't connect with authentic grievances and build some kind of authentic movement. What that's done, I think, is it's shaken the kaleidoscope. Uh, It's opened up a space in which I think the establishment has to wake up and smell the coffee or be overwhelmed, hopefully, by better insurgents. The thing that gave me the most hope over the um, last year and a half was going and spending time on the road with the Bernie Sanders movement, which was genuinely horizontal, absolutely fascinating. And if he'd gone to the general, I think he would have beaten Trump. Uh, I think that big organizing beats big data. And then also seeing what's happening on Crowdpack, our platform, with people starting campaigns every day, challenging incumbent Republican Congress people, challenging George Osborne here uh, over his decision to stay on in Tatton. Um, you know, th- th- there's real energy starting to bubble here. And I think that's dangerous, but there's also great hope in it. I'm optimistic in one, one sense I, I, about false news, which is another facet of what you're, 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 you're writing and talking about. Um, I mean, I, I like the fact that now the false, point about false news, which has always been existing. I mean, anyone who's been in newspapers just knows false news is, is news. <laughs> it's got degrees of falsity and degrees of rectitude mm. attached to it. What's, what's interesting now is the rapidity with which it's corrected. I mean, Trump could not get away with, um, from the moment he was, he was inaugurated, mm. he could not get away with this first lie. It lasted about two, two hours. The thing about the crowds yeah, being bigger. I mean, I mean the, 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 the swiftness with which... With which the great avalanches of fact and correction now descend on on items of news um, is to me genuinely optimistic. It's a, it's a good consequence of the internet. At the same time, I mean, it was Ross Perot who said, you know, from from today, traditional politics is dead. <laughs> from, from that day, Ross Perot was dead. Um, there are things you can't do. Uh, I read an analysis of the Obama campaign. The Obama campaign's use of social media was regarded as hugely sophisticated. It was chiefly about money raising. It was very, very good at money raising, and, and that, that's fair mm. enough. Whether it altered the character of politics, I'm just I'm very sceptical. And, and, and the reason, in part, is that, that it seems to me politics, the old maxim, politi- all politics is local, which is my kind of obsession, is true. Um, and what is new is, is that the social media have found new ways of local identity, coming back to where we were before, articulating itself and making itself felt. But it's rather t- it's traditional politics still. It's, it's, it's people gathering together to defend their interests. Yeah, I always wonder what the difference is between the method of the messaging and the message. And whether, you know, there were, I was in Cairo in 2011, and, you know, there was a lot of it's the Facebook revolution, and this is a new, this is going to change the world. It's not like this was the first revolution to ever happen. They were having revolutions and insurrections before Mm -hmm. printing. You know, the new technologies, you know, increase and a great rate of communication, but they don't necessarily change what people are talking about or what they want to do or how they react to it. And the Egyptian revolution was a classic case study because although it did, you know, coalesce to a certain extent around a Facebook page early on, um, the Egyptian government, you know, a day after the initial protest, cut all mobile phone lines and the internet in the country. So for four days of the crucial decision that people were making, do we go to the streets or not, there was no mobile phone or internet connection in that country. And actually, people said, you know, we went down to the streets to find out what was going on, to talk to people, to look around. So I sometimes wonder... And maybe you can help me understand a bit more of how how the rate or the rapidity or the network and the interconnectedness of that changes how things happen, as opposed to just mm. disseminating a message in a in a faster, quicker way. 
I think it makes everything faster and much more rapidly scalable. For instance, it used to be the case, and I talk about this in the piece, that you know, the campaign against the slave trade took several years to gather petition signatures meticulously of you know a few hundred thousand. And today you can do that in three days, less sometimes. Does it, but does it make any difference? Because um, you've still got to get the politicians to vote well, on it and act on it and what, do it. What, what that does is it gives you an activatable network of people who are connected in a weak tie way who can then do other things. So they can then end up in the streets. They can end up lobbying their, their politicians, as 38 Degrees and, and Avaz and others do on a regular basis. They can take out billboards, um, you know, which was actually part of the way in which the tax credit scheme of the government uh, fell apart when a number of marginal uh, seat MPs uh, for the Tories started realising that they were being targeted with a key part of their electoral constituency. Um, <laughs> so so th- this stuff can turn into real power, quite rapidly. And then, you know, what, what I'm seeing with the, um, uh, the resistance in the US uh, today is the way in which all of that energy can anchor itself into electoral politics and formal politics. At the, um, at the end of it, you're, you're operating on traditional political institutions still. I'm not clear whether the institution, I mean, picking up mm. Wendell's point about the message or the means of the message, studying the Arab Spring, mm. social media was fantastically good at getting people into the street. Well, big deal. Yes. Um, they still got shot. You can mobilise through these mediums, but then so could billboards. And I completely agree with that uh, challenge. I mean, indeed, in 2011, I was watching, you know, people who I was connected to in the Arab Spring and their uprisings, and and I was very worried because institutions matter, and there were two institutions uh, which had the power to seize the state uh, in Egypt, and they were the Ikhwan, the the Muslim Brotherhood, and and the the Deep State. Um, uh, And lo and behold, that's what happened, partly because the people in Tahrir Square... Uh, did not then institutionalize and build the kind of political movements and organizations needed. But I'm optimistic because, you know, a lot of the people in the Bernie Sanders movement came out of Occupy and other kinds of horizontal movements which had failed. They learned the lessons of that. They turned it into electoral politics. That movement failed. But I think the next movement, I mean, these people are now powering the resistance. They're the people behind the Women's March. They're the people behind a lot of the um, campaigning against healthcare. They're people who are pouring into the Democratic Party all across America. I think there's a great deal of hope there. So that's that for Headspace this time. My thanks to Simon Jenkins, to Wendell Stevenson and to Paul Hilder. The May edition of Prospect magazine features all of their full essays and more besides, including Jason Burke on what happens after ISIS and John Harris and Victoria Siegel hammering it out on whether or not Sergeant Pepper was any good. You can pick it up in the shops from Thursday, April the 17th. But even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And we'll see you again next time. Goodbye and thanks very much for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.